Welcome to New Orleans History, the podcasting channel of the Historic New Orleans Collection. Today, Lauren Newell will be interviewing Aaron Greenwald, historian and curator of the exhibit Pipe Dreams, Louisiana under the French Company of the Indies, 1717 to 1731. So, Aaron, tell us how this story begins. Well, the story for Pipe Dreams really begins in 1715 with the death of Louis XIV. Um, when Louis XIV died, he left France in the hands of his five-year-old great-grandson, uh, Louis XV. And because he wasn't old enough to rule, he was uh, his rule was overseen by the Regency. The Regent was the Duke of Orleans, after whom the city of New Orleans is named. Uh, the other thing that Louis XIV left at the time of his death was a massive financial crisis. His continental wars had essentially bankrupted the French treasury, and so the Duke of Orleans, Philippe, the Duke of Orleans, was left with this crisis of how to support the crown. And for that, he turned to the Scottish financier John Law who had quite a reputation across Europe as being a gambler, a swindler, but also a brilliant statistician. John Law had a rather nefarious past. He had been imprisoned in London's King's Bench prison, from which he escaped um, after having killed a man in a duel. Uh, and so the Duke of Orleans hires John Law and essentially brings him in to reform and reconfigure the French financial system. And Law comes in, and he, there are two parts to what he calls his system for the overhaul of the French Treasury. The first part is the establishment of a national bank, the French National Bank. And he does this in 1716. And in the exhibition, we have the original manuscript charter authorizing the establishment of the bank. And it's signed by six-year-old Louis XV the Duke of Orleans, and John Law, and several other witnesses. We have this shown in the exhibition, both in manuscript and printed forms. Within two years, the National Bank of France becomes the Royal Bank of France, and it's the first bank in the world to print and circulate paper money. And the idea of printing and circulating paper money is to alleviate this specie, or hard currency shortage, that is debilitating uh, the French Treasury. And so this is the very first part of his system. The second part is the establishment of a global trading company that will rival the Dutch East India Company and the English East India Company. And he does this through an entity called the Company of the West. And the idea is to siphon off the portions of the trade from the Dutch and the English company that are fueling uh, French commercial activity. About 8% of the uh, luxury goods circulated by the Dutch company, for example, were going into France. And so the French wanted to capture that share and uh, create a kind of global trading presence. To fund this company, law issued a series of shares, kind of stock shares, in the French Company of the Indies. And the share sales were premised on this idea that the company would soon be engaged as the sole monopoly holder of the Louisiana colony, which um, John Law sold as being the future place for a French version of the Chesapeake, that's to say, a place where uh, tobacco would be grown in enough quantities to satiate demand throughout the French Empire, 
that would allow the French to stop purchasing English leaf from the Chesapeake. And so the company's sales shares, they start off kind of slow, but within the first two years of the company's existence, John Law starts buying up these other uh, trading companies, companies like the Royal Africa Company, the, um, the Senegal Company, the, the China Company, and this conglomerate becomes known as the French Company of the Indies. And sales shares over the course of 1719 start going up and up and up to the point where by early 1720, stock share prices have reached such heights that the major investors fear an impending crash and they cash in their shares. And when they do that, they insist on being paid in hard currency, not in banknotes. And so the treasury uh, is very low, it's, it's near empty, there's a run on the bank, and the speculative bubble that's known as the Mississippi bubble uh, bursts in this kind of spectacular fashion that um, brings down the entire French treasury. The bank closes its doors, um, but the company emerges from the debacle as a viable commercial entity. How was the company going to profit for Louisiana? Well, I should say that following the collapse, the bursting of the Mississippi bubble, I mentioned that the company remained a viable entity, and that was because the sales of the initial rounds of stocks, the money that was generated through those sales, were actually invested into the company. And so you've got the purchase of many more ships to go into their fleet. You have the building up of their home port, in France known as Lorient or the Orient. Uh, you have also the establishment and um, kind of bolstering of their headquarters in Paris which abutted the gardens of the Duke of Orleans and more importantly for Louisiana you have the establishment of places like the city of New Orleans, uh, an establishment at the mouth of the Mississippi River, the Belize, and also uh, further infrastructure established in places like Natchez, Mobile, uh, Biloxi. And Natchez is particularly important for the French Company of the Indies because it is in Natchez and the surrounding area that they, <clears throat> excuse me, that they are attempting to establish uh, the, the nexus of their tobacco empire. Um, and I should say that prior to the bubble's collapse, there's really no tobacco plantations that are present in Louisiana, but after the company reemerges following the, the collapse of the bubble, there is this concerted effort to establish plantation agriculture there. And one way that they do this is through um, creating a support system in Natchez, uh, drying facilities, processing facilities for the tobacco leaf. They bring in uh, spies who have been in Virginia and explain to help explain and train colonists in the way to grow uh, English-style leaf as opposed to the French-style leaf, which was more suited to snuffing or rubbing along the gum line than it was for uh, smoking. They bring in uh, smuggled Virginia leaf seeds. You know, they're doing all of these things in an attempt to prime the colony to become this site of tobacco cultivation. And that includes bringing in large numbers of African slaves. Uh, between 1719, when the first slave ship arrives in Louisiana, and 1731, when the company pulls out of the colony, 
uh, approximately 6,800 Africans board ships along the African coast, particularly from Senegambia. And from there, they leave for Louisiana, where the intent is they will become uh, laborers in this tobacco empire. Now, of course, what, what actually happens is many of these um, enslaved Africans end up working uh, for the Company of the Indies in the capacity of clearing swamps and clearing uh, cypress forest, and clearing the lands in order to prime them, not only for tobacco cultivation, but here locally in New Orleans, just for the establishment of the city. Um, and you have uh, African slaves who are working along the colony's numerous waterways. So they're engaged in all of these different areas of building up the colony in an effort to uh, make it profitable to the company. Uh, of course, at the same time, you have widespread immigration from both uh, French ports and also from places like the Rhineland. The company engages in this kind of widespread propaganda campaign depicting Louisiana as the land of milk and honey. You know, this, this is a marketing ploy that has been used in the Americas for a couple hundred years, um, trying to get people to come believing that there's mineral wealth, that there's gold, there's silver, there's lead, there's copper, what have you, when in fact there was, there was very little here upon which people could make quick and easy money. How did the company's presence in Louisiana affect the colony? Well, as I've already mentioned, there is this influx of capital that didn't exist prior to um, the company's monopoly. I mean, really, you had about 400 colonists in the colony total prior to 1717, and that's from the Gulf Coast all the way up to the Illinois country. And by the end of the company period, you're talking about several thousand people inhabiting the colony. So that's one way that the, co the company's presence really changed the, the face of Louisiana. The other way is that they, they come in fully armed with uh, a whole host of trade goods because the second component of trying to establish a plantation agriculture system is the acquisition of land. And during the company period and really throughout the French colonial period, uh, Native Americans outnumber the Europeans and the Africans in the colony by more than 14 to 1. And so when you're trying to establish plantation agriculture, you really need land. And if you need land in an area that's inhabited by Indians who far outnumber you, you have to make sure that you are establishing the types of relationships with your neighbors, for lack of a better word, um, that allow you to, to spread out, basically. And so the company is engaged in uh, this Indian trade. Uh, and we focus on the Indian trade in the exhibition by displaying the, the whole host of objects that kind of undergirded the company-Indian relationship during this period. So Indians would bring to the company very often deer skins, provisions, and things of that nature. In exchange, the company would provide the uh, various native groups with things like uh, glass trade beads. And it's interesting to note that these glass trade beads are coming from Venice. These are kind of the Murano glass beads that people might be familiar with today. 
They were essential items in the Indian trade. They were used both as uh, bartering objects, but also as decorative objects, especially the smaller beads. Seed beads were used to embellish clothing and whatnot. Um, other items that were very popular in the Indian trade were brass kettles, you know, metal, metal pots that had a longer lifespan than the traditional um, earthenware pots that Native Americans were using prior to contact. Uh, muskets, musket balls, um, all sorts of items, bells, trading shirts, hats trimmed with fake gold or silver braid. So these all of these items were kind of flowing into and throughout the colony in an effort to maintain neutral, peaceful relationships with many of the Indian groups and with others, such as the Choctaw and the Tunica, to in fact create these kind of um, alliances between the, the Europeans and their Indian neighbors. So in the present day, Virginia is still associated with tobacco cultivation and production. Why can't the same be said for Louisiana? Well, despite the company's best efforts, and they literally poured millions of livres, millions into the colony in trying to start up this tobacco empire. And by 1728, they had, in fact, come a long way. They were producing about 150,000 pounds of tobacco annually, which is a very small quantity compared to what's being produced in Virginia, but it is a start. Uh, unfortunately, the area in which the center of the tobacco cultivation was, was located was in Natchez, a place that was already inhabited by the Natchez Indians. That's where the town gets its name. And as the 1720s went on, more and more Europeans migrated to the Natchez settlement, and there were tensions over time between the French and their Indian neighbors. But at the same time, these were people who saw each other on a daily basis. They supported each other. They traded with each other. As was the case in many settlements in Louisiana, the settlers often would not have been able to survive without having uh, Indian trading partners with whom they traded for foodstuffs and provisions and things of that nature. But in Natchez, in 1729, um, there was a situation with a French commander. He was the commander of the fort, Fort Rosalie. His name was De Chepau. We don't know his first name. And De Chepau, by all accounts, was uh, not a very smart man. He was very um, hot-tempered and perhaps was not the best person in terms of his character uh, to be leading uh, an area where the t situation was a little bit tense. At any rate, in um, the summer of 1729, this commander, de Chapeau, calls the chief of the White Apple Village, the Natchez chief of the White Apple Village, to the fort, and he makes demands on him for the White Apple chief to vacate, along with all of the villagers, the White Apple Village properties, so that de Chapeau can establish his own tobacco plantation on the site. Uh, this is kind of the last straw. The, the chief says, you know, okay, you know, I think this is probably not in our best interests, but at least let us get our harvest in before we vacate the village. 
and Dushetha agrees to this. The White Apple Chief goes back to his village where he calls a war council of all of the different Natchez chiefs. And the Natchez territory really spread from, you know, uh, English South Carolina in the east all the way over into present-day Louisiana across the Mississippi River. So he calls this war council and the Natchez have essentially had enough. Um, there have been land grabs in the past and this is kind of the most egregious example of the French overstepping their bounds in the area. And so they essentially plan to annihilate the French at the Natchez settlement. On the morning of November 28, 1729, the Natchez chiefs, along with several hundred Natchez warriors, arrive at the settlement uh, and they greet the French, they go to the French fort and they say, you know, in honor of our continued friendship and peace, we would like to host a feast between the Europeans and the Natchez this evening. And de Chapeau agrees and the Natchez say, you know, can you lend us your guns so that we can go out and kill the, the, the prey that will be feasted upon this evening. And the settlers in the settlement of Natchez agree. They give the Indians their guns. And I think you probably know what's coming next. Essentially, the Natchez turn against the French and they ultimately kill more than 230 men, women, and children, mostly men, but also women and children, in the Natchez settlement. They killed the Chapeau and all of the soldiers in the Fort Rosalie. And they take hostage more than 50 women and children and more than 100, between 150 and 300 African slaves. But the carnage doesn't really stop there. In fact, it's just begun. The next step that they take is they set fire to all of the tobacco that is ready to be harvested in the fields. They burn the tobacco infrastructure, so the drying sheds and the processing facilities and the shipping facilities. And to top it off, they capture this half galley, a half galley is a small ship that's recently arrived from New Orleans that is full of trade goods destined for the Natchez Post owned by the Company of the Indies. And these goods were intended to be distributed both through trade and as gifts to Indians throughout the region over the course of the next six months to a year. So this is a very large quantity of trade goods that have been taken. The following two years, the French are essentially engaged in a retaliatory war against the Natchez. Um, the French are allied with the Choctaw, who in fact recover the 50 hostages um, and bring them into New Orleans. And what's interesting about that relationship with, between the Choctaw and their French allies is that in fact the Choctaw refuse to hand over the hostages to the French because the French have no trade goods with which to pay them. Um, and they have no trade goods because the Natchez have taken them all. Uh, they were all in this half galley that was captured. So how does the story end? Well, the story doesn't end very well for either the Natchez or the company. In the years 1730 and 1731, the French and their Indian allies, particularly the Choctaw and the Tunica, 
really spend all of their time hunting down and killing all of the Natchez that they can find. Um, there are a handful, uh, as there's, it's difficult to estimate how many, but there are some Natchez who manage to escape and assimilate into neighboring Indian groups. And there's a, between five and 600 Natchez, mostly women, who are captured by the French and their Indian allies and imprisoned. And they're brought to New Orleans where they're held in the jail, which was located on the site that now hosts the Cabildo. Um, unfortunately, many of those who were enslaved, excuse me, many of those who were jailed end up dying before they are shipped to Saint-Domingue and sold as slaves for the profit of the Company of the Indies. Uh, for the company, it's really such a huge financial loss. Uh, everything that was destroyed, you know, that represented much of their investment in the colony. And the company decides ultimately in January of 1731 to relinquish its hold, relinquish its monopoly on the Louisiana Company and retrocede the colony to the king, who Louis XV is now of age and fully into his own right. Well, that is a fascinating story. Um, so what are some things visitors will see in the exhibition? Well, you know, this exhibition is intended to show not only the company's presence in Louisiana, but where Louisiana fit within the global trade network of the Company of the Indies. And so we have a lot of items that relate to the, the trade on a global level. You know, we have, uh, for example, a dress made of the finest Indian, and Indian in this context, I mean Indian Ocean Indian, uh, finest Indian muslin that you've ever seen that's got very beautiful hand embroidered leaves all over it and it's you know interesting to think about this dress this is a dress made of Indian cotton that would have been worn anywhere in the tropical French colonial world so it could have been worn in uh, India the Caribbean or Louisiana and there are other objects like that as well you know a portion of the exhibition deals with the African slave trade to Louisiana and we have a series of maps and engravings that speak to that. We also have a set of slave shackles worn by either a very small woman or a child on the middle passage and we include it to be a reminder of kind of the horrors of the passage. And another item in that same case that we include is a sack of what's called money cowries. And you've seen these. These are uh, seashells that are people often use them now as um, pieces of jewelry and embellishments but you know cowrie shells were the 18th century equivalent of packing peanuts the company harvested cowrie shells from the Indian Ocean and they used the cowrie shells to pack their crates of textiles or porcelain or whatever it was that they were bringing back from the Indian Ocean world to France so they got them at a very low cost. And then they would unload ships in France and load these cowrie shells that had been used essentially as packing materials or as ballast into the holds of ships that were bound for Africa. They would bring the cowrie shells to the African coast along with things like cloth that they had imported from India and muskets from France. And they would literally trade things like cowrie shells 
for human beings because in Africa cowrie shells were used as uh, a money that's why they're called money cowries so you've got shells harvested in the Indian Ocean packing items brought to France sent to Africa where they're used to purchase Africans that are then bound for Louisiana and so I'm really trying to show the global connections uh, that you know may not be so obvious to everyone Tell me about some of the objects that relate specifically to tobacco culture. Sure. Well, in the exhibition, we've included um, objects that speak to tobacco culture, not only in Louisiana, but also in Europe. Um, the North American use of tobacco far predates the European arrival. and We have a couple of pre-contact um, elbow pipes, so the pipe bowls that would have been on the end of pipes used by Native Americans in the lower Mississippi River Valley. We also have a calumet or peace pipe bowl. The calumet was essential in uh, conducting trade and diplomatic and military relations between the Europeans and the French. And all of these calumets are made out of a red stone known as caitlinite. Caitlinite comes from Minnesota. And it's interesting that it comes from Minnesota because it is found throughout the southeast, which means that this is a stone that was valued for its um, use in the peace pipe and was traded along these interior routes in the continent. We also have a series of objects that speak to tobacco culture in France and shifting tastes among European consumers. Um, I mentioned in a previous piece that uh, tobacco was often used as snuff and we have these two magnificent snuff boxes that are on loan from the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh and then we also have two tobacco rasps which were essentially uh, oversized graters that were used to grate the tobacco that was uh, in a stick um, kind of a stick shaped mold and you would grate the stick of tobacco on these tobacco rasps and produce snuff. Well, shifting preferences led uh, consumers away from snuff-style tobacco to pipe tobacco. And we have a series of pipes that were recovered from the Old Mobile and Port Dauphin sites in Alabama, which, of course, were French settlements in Louisiana at the time. We have those on display along with um, other uh, artifacts like Diderot's plates that show how tobacco was processed. So what do you hope visitors take away from this exhibition? Well, I think it's important for people to note that we understand more about this period in French colonial history than probably any other period in the 18th century. And that's because we have a large quantity of written accounts that speak to this particular 14-year period. There were a lot of literate, educated individuals who arrived in the colony during this time. Uh, we have people like Ursuline nuns, engineers, naturalists, clerks, ships officers, and soldiers, and we have all of these voices that help us better understand what Louisiana was like, at least from the European perspective. And so what we've tried to do in the exhibition is use these voices combined with artifacts and objects from the time to bring the period alive to guests.
you know, we hope people get a sense of what it was like not only to be here in the colony in the 1720s, but also what it was like to travel from France or from Africa to the colony in the 1720s. I mean, it was a pretty brutal trip. And we're hoping that people have a better understanding of the globally interconnected nature of Louisiana during this time period. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about the Historic New Orleans Collection's current exhibition, Pipe Dreams, Louisiana under the French Company of the Indies, 1717 to 1731. For any listeners that would like some more information, just visit hnoc.org. Thank, thank you. you.